been a surge recently of new movies and TV shows that depict racism as horror. For example, Jordan Peele's Get Out in his TV horror series Lovecraft Country. Didn't you say it was called Liddy's? It's in the right place. Don't judge a book by its cover. The book can't refuse your service. Or spit in your water glass. Good afternoon. Believe it or not, these shows have their roots and stories that ran in black newspapers during the Jim Crow era. These stories worked really hard to imagine a variety of solutions, whether that meant living in an alternate world or whether it meant stories that were actually about actively confronting white supremacy. I'm Sarah McConnell, and this is With Good Reason. Many well-known African-American protest novels, like Richard Wright's Native Son and Anne Petrie's The Street, represent Jim Crow America as a deterministic machine and its Black inhabitants as doomed victims. Brooks Hefner is a professor of literature at James Madison University. He says actually the fiction stories that ran in Black newspapers during that time had a much wider readership than those popular novels, and they told a very different story. Brooks, you write in your new book, Black Pulp, Genre Fiction in the Shadow of Jim Crow, that the most widely distributed Black literature from the 1920s through the 50s was actually in Black newspapers. That's right. Well, we often underestimate the importance of newspapers and periodicals. And Black newspapers were widely distributed across the country. Hundreds of thousands of copies were circulating they're passed around among family members, friends, um, in, in libraries. The fiction that was published there actually built a national readership for black popular fiction in a way that was very different from those uh, more famous African-American writers and novelists that we know, people like Ralph Ellison, people like Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes. These books circulated very well, but a, lo- a significant portion of their readership was white. The difference with uh, the fiction that was distributed in black newspapers is almost 100% of that readership was African-American. About how many black papers were there around that time? I can't say exactly because so many of them have been lost to the the archival record. I'm working with uh, an archive that extends into the 30-something number of newspapers, maybe 34 included this tabloid section. Those newspapers were everywhere from Baltimore to Atlanta, Portland, Oregon, Houston, Texas, Omaha, uh, all over the country. And the two that I focus on were coming out of Pittsburgh and Baltimore, the Pittsburgh Courier and the Baltimore Afro-American. And those papers had fiction stories as well as news coverage? Exactly. Uh, Fiction in black newspapers is a long tradition, goes back well into the 19th century. What I noticed was that around the 1920s, they started publishing stories that were much more like the popular kinds of formula stories that we know, romance, detective stories, westerns, science fiction stories, horror stories, fantasy stories. None of these had really been included in any significant way before then, but there was a moment where this shifted and suddenly the stories were not just activist or stories that were promoting a particular political goal but they were stories that were designed to entertain readers. Um, and even in spite of that entertainment, might actually still contain important social and political ideas. Could you tell that they were popular? You could absolutely tell that they were popular. On the one hand, the number of copies sold um, of, the, of the newspapers showed that they had a wide variety, but they also generated a lot of reader interest. Readers wrote uh, letters in, sometimes There was a dialogue uh, with readers around the stories. Um, In certain cases, newspapers might uh, um, solicit reader ideas. Uh, There's a series from the 1940s um, of a a character called the Black Robin who goes around writing the wrongs of white supremacy in the South. And uh, there were ads that explicitly asked readers to write in with problems that were in their hometown. 
And then those might be translated into an imaginary solution of those problems in the pages um, of the of the Baltimore Afro-American where these stories appeared. You've written that actually these were much more optimistic and empowering stories than the African-American writers of the time were publishing in their tomes, right? That's absolutely right. There's a way that the popular stories that I'm talking about pushed back against the presumption that black writers needed to write tragedy. Because if we read uh, stories from the African-American literary tradition, for a very good reason, those stories are often tragic stories. For example, um, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man or Richard Wright's Native Son and Petrie's The Street. There were so many uh, African-American novels of the mid-century that really worked in the mode of tragedy almost exclusively. But what I found interesting in these stories is that instead of only describing the problems of Jim Crow, these stories worked really hard to imagine a variety of solutions to Jim Crow, whether that meant living in an alternate world where the kind of white supremacist power structures weren't affecting the lives of their characters, or whether it meant stories that were actually about actively confronting uh, white supremacy um, and Jim Crow segregation. You have a chapter on the rise of the black superhero in fiction long before there was Black Panther. That's absolutely right. Heroes were a big deal in um, in the pulp magazines that these stories are kind of playing with. Yeah. I focus on two of these characters. Uh, one is the Black Robin, uh, who is a character who responds to reader complaints about you know, instances of prejudice in, in the South. His adventures could be anything from breaking prisoners out of a prison camp where they are being uh, essentially murdered by prison guards uh, to attempting to... Um, Put pressure on local governments that are that are underestimating the um, the sexual exploitation of, of black women by white men in southern cities. Uh, another another example that that we see is is um, the kind of sexual double standards, especially for black women who are abused by by groups of white men. The other character that I spend the most time talking about, uh, Jiggs Bennett, who's created by James Hill. He's a newspaper guy, so he is working for a fictional newspaper in the stories that were in the pages of this real newspaper. But he's a real activist reporter, and so he's he's engaged with a variety of, of efforts to overthrow white supremacy, including um, a secret underground organization. But also the stories deal with things like the um, racial housing covenants. Um, and there's a great story where he's actually investigating this, this situation around racial housing, housing covenants at the very same time that the newspaper is covering the Supreme Court case, which is deciding on the constitutionality of racial housing covenants. It's so interesting. It makes me think that during this period, African-American middle-class audiences devouring these stories in black newspapers were getting a much different education and civic education than white audiences were getting. White audiences were not reading these newspapers. That's absolutely correct. And in fact, one of the things I think is so fascinating about this particular group of texts is that they show a real awareness of what white readers were actually reading. In fact, uh, one of my favorite uh, finds from this book is a writer named Gertrude Schalk. Um, and Gertrude Schalk is someone who, for the most part, has has been forgotten she was a, ultimately a, a society columnist um, and uh, was inducted into, I think it was the, the Pennsylvania uh, Journalism Hall of Fame um, as a society columnist writing for the, for the Pittsburgh Courier. But Gertrude Schalk lived a kind of double life in the 1930s. She was writing, uh, making a living really, writing for uh, the romance pulp magazines, magazines like Love Story magazine. And she did well. But the amazing thing is that she wrote these stories as a black woman originally from Boston, and they were all about white people. And they were illustrated in these pulp magazines and, you know, blindingly white couples uh, in these stories. But at the same time, she wrote a number of things, not quite as many because it didn't pay as well, for black newspapers, taking the conventions of romance 
and imagining how they might work differently for a black audience. And what sort of things changed? Well, I think she imagined a, a wider lassitude for what a romance story might look like. Um, they don't always have to end the same way. If you read a, a, a pulp magazine, a romance pulp magazine, they pretty much all end the same way. But for um, Gertrude Schalk, who really was successful at doing this, she knew the rules of the game. And she also knew how to, how to mix things up a bit. For example, she might have characters who run up against the prohibitions um, for female behavior in the, in the mainstream pulp magazines. But in, when she's writing for a black newspaper, she might actually you know, give, us op, give us characters who have checkered pasts but can still be redeemed. Or she might give us uh, romance stories that don't always end perfectly. So she injects a kind of realism. And then there's a, another way, I mean, one of my favorite instances of this is, is a, a, she, she publishes a, a series of stories called The Yellow Parrot. And the, the Yellow Parrot is the name of a fictional Harlem nightclub. Each of the stories in this series is about a different dancer from that nightclub. And each of them has a different kind of romantic adventure. And some of them are pretty conventional, the kind of thing that you'd see, right? You know, a dancer is really hoping to marry a rich guy, but she falls in love with a poet, something like that. <laughs> but there are other stories where she kind of pushes the limits. And, and one of my favorite ones involves uh, an interracial romance. You know, this dancer goes out with this with this white guy who's come up to Harlem and into the room busts uh, uh, someone who may be his, his girlfriend who is white. And they actually get in a fight, and the story doesn't end with her falling in love with the guy. It just ends with her kind of knocking this uh, this really racist white woman down and and walking away very pleased with herself. Huh. It's it's so different from what you think of as a romance story, but it's built into this larger uh, narrative about romance. How do you think these serialized stories in the black newspapers wound to a close? You said this happened between the twenties and fifties. Why did they peter out? My instinct on this is that it tracks pretty solidly with the rise and fall of the pulp magazines that they were often referencing. And, and, and that goes away in the early 50s as well. There's a huge change in the 1950s in publishing more generally. And there are more opportunities in some cases for black writers um, to move into different kinds of venues. Um, and I think probably there's you know economic costs in terms of space and coverage um, in the newspapers as well. So I think there's a variety of factors that, that that brought this to a close. But it comes to a close just before you begin to see black publishing houses have more presence, I think, in the in the publishing world. You have books, basically. Exactly, and that's what happened with the pulp magazines too. Is everyone would prefer to to have a pocket paperback they can stash away. Um, that tells a full, longer story than a, than a magazine with a bunch of short stories. Do you see any media today that occupies the same space these newspaper stories once did, or a, a thread that has continued the tradition from then? Someone like Jordan Peele, the director of, of Get Out and Us, um, and I guess the forthcoming uh, film Nope, uh, who's who's a who's become a, a pretty major um, figure in horror film and science fiction to some degree. When I look at, at at Jordan Peele's work, I think here's someone who really understands the rules of the game, how these stories are supposed to work, how these formulas work. If you're making a horror story, these are the rules, and he's very interested in kind of twisting and and um, undermining those rules in a way that actually exposes how the rules themselves, those formulas, those conventions, are rooted in certain kinds of white supremacist thinking. Give me an example of that. Give me, give me an example of how the rules are sort of based on white supremacist thinking. Well, I think a good example, at least from, from Jordan Peele's work, is, is the film Get Out, where white minds are basically put into black bodies for longevity's sake. And this kind of mind-body dichotomy has been racialized for a long time. And so I think he, he's someone who's really thinking about, if we make this explicit, then everyone can see it. Well, Brooks Hefner, this is fascinating. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's uh, great to talk with you. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Brooks Hefner is a professor of literature at James Madison University. 
His book is Genre Fiction in the Shadow of Jim Crow. The novels and plays of 18th century England shape the way we think about the history of that time. But sometimes the art that stays popular centuries later doesn't really give us a full picture of the time. Jonathan Crimmins is an associate professor of English at the University of Virginia College at Wise. His book project, Harlequin Against History, looks at the way a short-lived genre of comedy theater opens the door for viewing history differently. Tell me about Harlequin. This was a comedic theater character from historical times. That's correct. Yeah. Um, Harlequin was a commedia dell'arte Italian comedy figure that originated in Italy in the 16th century, somewhere in the middle of the 16th century, and spread throughout Europe and over the course of about 150 years. And so the period that I'm looking at is the 18th century when the figure of Harlequin became the, the central figure of a kind of theater that was incredibly popular and incredibly lucrative uh, during the 18th century. So tell me about the figure of Harlequin himself. What did he look like? And I think once you describe him, we'll realize we've seen those images everywhere. That's right. There's a, a a movie comic book character by the name of Harley Quinn based on the Harlequin figure. The Harlequin was a kind of trickster figure. He wore what is called a motley coat, a many-colored costume, and he wore a black mask. And where would you typically see Harlequin perform? Where would the Harlequin comedy come in at an evening at the theater, let's say? Perfect. Well, it began as a folk performance, so they would be in the in the town fairs. But in the 18th century, the figure of Harlequin was imported into the two main theaters in England, and they would have your main stage performance would be serious theater, either comedy or tragedy, but mainstream serious theater. And then in the afterpiece, you would have something that was more like buffoonery or what we might think of as pure sketch comedy, and those would occur after. And so if you think about um, an evening at the theater in the 18th century, between acts, there would be performances of music and or poetry or um, different kinds of dances. Um, and the Harlequinades fit in quite well with this, uh, with the main difference being that they were huge, elaborate spectacles, very expensive, with elaborate stage machinery to make what looked like magic appear uh, on stage. Oh, really? What sort of things would they do? A lot of it was based around transformation, one thing transforming into another. Harlequin carried a, a kind of staff, which made a, a sort of a slapping sound. So this is what where the term slapstick comes from. When he slapped things with his sword, you would get different kinds of transformations. And so the, a lot of the comedy was based around body humor, things turning, Harlequin turning into a dog or, or uh, a ostrich or flying away. Um, but there was also a lot of emphasis on gymnastics and capering about dances that became very um, combined with gymnastic feats. That's fascinating. I could see why that would be so popular. What led to the decline eventually of Harlequin Theater? Yeah, uh, I would say that rather than declined, it transformed. Um, Harlequin becomes less central to the commedia performances, and they become what are what the British will call pantos or pantomimes. So that's one sort of direction they evolved into. Um, but you can see remnants of it in a lot of places. Um, I was just watching with my daughter Donald O'Connor's song "Make Him Laugh" in "Singing in the Rain," and the the a lot of the uh, the sort of gags and tricks in that little song. His parents were vaudevillians, and you know he's a uh, kind of trained with them, and so you can see the gymnastic dancing song and dance routine there um, in a pretty modern form, but it would it's almost to a certain degree like time travel. You can look back and see really what it would have looked like via vaudeville. The Commedia dell'arte uh, performances inform things like um, Looney Tunes cartoons. Um, you'll see it in, in Disney films. Um, the fairy tales that were um, first performed as pantomimes, then show up as, as Disney films. Um, you'll see it in, in miming or the circus itself. Um, and uh, 
the, to a certain degree, musicals and the expectation that a musical will be uh, elaborately staged and beautifully staged is a remnant of the Harlequinade. What sort of description showing how someone reacted to one of these performances did you come across that most delighted you for helping you think, yeah, I could totally picture this? Uh, I first became interested in the figure of Harlequin and and Harlequinades um, in part because I was reading a uh, play called The Emperor of the Moon. There's a scene in which Harlequin decides that he out of honor, needs to commit suicide because he's in love. And so he decides that he needs to think of the best way to do this. And so each of the methods that he imagines, he rules out. And in the end, he decides that the best way to commit suicide is to uh, tickle himself. And so you get this, you know, what must have been <laughs> a long, drawn-out, elaborate scene where um, he has to tickle himself all over his body and pretend to be ticklish, you know, which of course is impossible. You can't tickle yourself. Um, but you can also sort of imagine the different kinds of body humor. We can think about a lot of our most ticklish places, but some of our most ticklish places would be obscene. And so that you could see the Harlequin figure would be able to skirt around or approach those different kinds of um, of areas of taboo. Right. Uh, and that was, a, it was one, one um, instance that made me, um, got me sort of thinking about uh, how, how would this look and how, you know, to pursue it further in this, in this book project. Why do you call it Harlequin Against History? Well, normally when we think of literary texts, we can pinpoint the moment or the length of time in which they were written. But because of the way that Harlequinades were improvised, the way that they have roots that go back 150 years, and yet that they, at the same time when they would have been incredibly topical. So they, because they were improvised, they could have been updated to the latest gossip, the latest um, item in the newspaper. For those reasons, they don't easily map back onto their historical conditions or their historical position. Um, so that's one way in which they are against history, that they don't stay rooted in the place that you think that they should, or the place, the first performance doesn't necessarily mean it was the first performance because a new title in a Harlequinade might be an old show and they've just swapped the titles right. um, and they, you know, they might be borrowing the same gags um, that somebody else has used and they really push us to think about the problem of literary inheritance in ways that we don't normally think. I can totally see that. And then in other ways that Harlequin is against history. Um, well, in the other ways, sometimes we think about, or when we think about history, we tend to think about empire, nation, capitalism. And uh, Harlequin is the story of the underdog. It's in a relationship to power, but the answer in the Harlequinade tends to emphasize different values. So there's an emphasis on playfulness, an emphasis on transformation, an emphasis on running away and hiding and, and sneaking around, mm -hmm. and on pleasure and on joy. Those are values that we don't necessarily see showing up in history, in history books. And it's, I think useful to try to make sure that we are not always telling stories about history that make power seem like it's the only thing that matters. Because if power is the only thing that matters, we begin to romanticize violence, exploitation, and those stories about history um, have been very destructive. That's so true. The Harlequins for you were the history of human culture in a way, and how it has moved and changed and been unchanged through time. Yeah. I mean, this is an analogy to a certain degree. I'm going to use this, an analogy, but um, 
you might say, or you, one way to think about it is, um, in our contemporary, something in, that's contemporary is that, it, that, um, if, if Bernie Sanders had won the primary there, it, there would have been a kind of absurdist kind of event. Um, not because I was, you know, I was a Bernie supporter, um, but because you have a transformation of a, of a, of a marginalized senator to what would have potentially been president, you would have had uh, a, a complete change in the face of the Democratic Party. You know, and when we think about Bernie, we think often about sort of, um, we understand his policies or whatever, but you also get to see part of the appeal are in, are in the small absurdist elements like Bernie's mittens or the bird that landed on his podium. <laughs> these, these kinds of things are also expressions of a kind of joy in the candidacy of, of Bernie Sanders. Speaking of Bernie and memes like the gloves and the bird, do you think that Harlequin sort of has morphed nowadays to more of a, let's say, TikTok or YouTube platform? You know, I mean, one thing, the I would say the contemporary equivalent of the Harlequin Aid right now are, are uh, comic book movies, um, superhero movies. The same kind of escapist fantasies are involved, the same kind of elaborate productions. They're, they're super expensive. They require the absolute latest in special effects. But what is interesting to me is precisely around this question of history is that if you look at a lot of those superhero films, they're essentially militaristic. And the solution is almost always more power, more violence, a battle that must be won, right? And uh, when we go back and think about the 18th century and the difference with a Harlequin figure is that um, those values were not front and center. The laughter was primary, and I think it was meaningful, and uh, joy uh, was meaningful. And uh, I think it would be useful to think about why those forces have been denigrated when we think about how to change the world. Well, Jonathan Crimmins, thank you for sharing this with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you very much for having me. It was really wonderful to be here, and thank you for listening. Jonathan Crimmins is an associate professor of English at the University of Virginia College at Wise. His book project is Harlequin Against History. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. In February of 2018, two images surfaced from the 1984 medical school yearbook of then-Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. A scandal erupting over the Democratic governor of Virginia. Virginia's Republican Party says he should resign if... Four pictures if here, and then one of them includes someone appearing to dress up in blackface, as well as another person dressed up in what appears to be a KKK costume. This is from the 1984 yearbook here at Eastern Virginia Medical School, where Ralph Northam graduated... While it's unclear whether he was the young man in blackface or in a Klansman robe, either way, there were outraged calls at the time for his resignation. When the yearbook photos went public, James Madison University sociology professor Steve Polson and his students began looking through the digital archives of all Virginia college yearbooks. What they found shocked them. Stephen, when did you first start looking for pictures and drawings in Virginia college yearbooks that would show the race culture of the past? Well, this was about four years ago. Uh, it was during a scandal that took place in Virginia when Governor Northam was pictured in his medical school yearbook. Well, we don't know if it was him, but uh, there was a picture in Governor Northam's yearbook that uh, showed someone in blackface. And so I began to wonder uh, how prevalent this was. So I started investigating 10 
university yearbooks. The earliest ones were in the 1890s up through the present period. Probably the most interesting content in the early yearbooks had to do with the state clubs, which no longer exist. But particularly in the South, there were these student organizations associated with where the students had come from. There was the Virginia Club, the South Carolina Club. And this is a place where students were really allowed to editorialize a lot. So they, that was a useful area. Did you see much evidence of attitudes about race relations through the years at these colleges? Yeah, particularly as it relates to extracurricular activities. I was surprised by how common uh, blackface performances were, sometimes full-scale minstrel shows, but also choral groups uh, performing in blackface. I I believe the last minstrel production we saw that was campus-wide was actually at Longwood College in the early 70s. Uh, VMI had a minstrel show that began in the 1950s and appears to have run annually through 1964. So minstrel productions, blackface performances actually took place, you know, in formal settings into the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Can you give me examples of the kinds of pictures you would see? And you saw lots? We have thousands of pictures, not of minstrel shows, but as it relates to, you know, race caricature. The most common content that we found for the early period were these racial caricatures, which directly are related to the minstrel traditions, like, um, you know, Jim Crow, mammy figures, uh, small children. Are, there's a lot of caricature that, for instance, shows black men in trouble with the law, black men gambling with razors and clubs, and this idea that, um, you know, this is routine. You know, comical violence being directed towards not well not just black children but also black women black men was pretty routine in the yearbooks the racial integrity act was passed in uh virginia 1924 and there was definitely this theme in the, in in the virginia yearbooks about a reversion to barbarism and this idea that absent oversight by kindly white masters that the black community was somehow not somehow in some ways less than less than human as compared to the, the white community. A lot of it was associated with the study of eugenics at the time, which was also really common in the yearbooks, particularly at the University of Virginia. What do you mean? What would you see as far as eugenics in the yearbooks? Well, uh, mostly you have to dig a little bit more, but the yearbooks were oftentimes dedicated to prominent men at the time, like Thomas Nelson Page. And he wrote a book called The the Southerner, the Negro's problem. And he used this theme, this reversion to barbarism. He says, quite frankly, before the Civil War, blacks were kindly, industrious, and when not misled, contributing to society. And then he says, in the absence, after the Civil War, education is having no effect. And this was, again, this was the man that the the yearbook was dedicated to. So I I started to dig into the curriculum a little bit, and it turns out that the study of eugenics was common not just in the medical school at UVA, but also in many of the other departments at the time, for instance, the biology department. Mm. You've written that the name Corks and Curls, the name of the UVA yearbook, is actually a name drawn from blackface. How so? Yeah, I, I, it seems like that is the case. There have been people that have opined on this a bit more, but the idea is that the corks, the burnt cork, is what people would use to blacken their face. And then the curls, again, would be the curls that people wore when they were representing um, black men and women. Why would something like that be in a college yearbook? Well, I, I have to tell you, that was exactly what I asked myself. And you would think at an all-white university with men that the preoccupation with race would not be so great. But, you know, those skits and the caricatures and and then, you know, reinforced by the images of Black staff and, and sometimes direct conversations about who the staff were, you started to realize that really race was at the forefront of these students' minds. And, and race was at the forefront in terms of campus relations with the Black staff. And and there was an ongoing attempt to kind of normalize the discrepancies and the hierarchies of these races. And and it, whether or not they knew it or not, these were students that were really preoccupied, and, and the faculty also preoccupied by issues associated with race. There's another image in the Washington Lee yearbook with a picture of the KKK. Are you saying there were lots of images of the KKK in that era, in yearbooks? There were not lots of images. Um, there were one or two. 
in a lot of yearbooks. So, for example, I'm going through the William and Mary yearbooks right now, and they're about the same period. The KKK is represented often in the club section, which could be a kind of metaphorical reference to the fact that the KKK actually did have a presence on some of these campuses. So, for example, there is a KKK picture on the section of the yearbook that introduces the clubs in the Corks and Curls yearbook. There's another page in one of the yearbooks called Some Color Lines on College Sport, and it refers to the Gentleman's Agreement. What is the Gentleman's Agreement? The Gentleman's Agreement was probably first established by Washington and Lee, and they made uh, opposing sports teams sit any black players, and usually this is a football team, when they were playing against these teams. And so the gentleman's agreement, I I believe it was established with Rutgers University when they actually made Paul Robeson uh, sit. And Paul Paul Robeson later became a really prominent actor and then civil rights activist. And then then the the gentleman's agreement was adopted by uh, UVA and, and other colleges in Virginia at the time as well. You also looked at Howard University's yearbook. This is the prominent national HBCU in Washington, D.C. Did you find a lot of racialized images also there in those yearbooks? Uh, Howard University looks utterly modern in terms of the way it's constructed. Uh, they they talk a lot about race, but they always talk about race in a, in, in a, in a much more positive way. And, and mostly they're they're concentrating on ideas that we would accept now in terms of, you know, equality and, and particularly equality under the law. So uh, they are constantly discussing uh, issues that are occurring, such as mob violence uh, by the KKK. But, you know, there is not racialized uh, content in terms of caricatures and um, like the Virginia yearbooks. It's, it's a completely different culture at Howard University. These pictures are so stark. I mean, there's no mistaking what was going on during that period, what public attitudes were, how white students felt about African-Americans. How is that helpful for us to realize this is how we've evolved? Well, right now, I think it's useful because if you approach this text in a good faith way and, and you see that this is content issued by these universities, there's really no denying that structural racism existed, that there was a system in place that ordered people, told them what they could do, what they could not do. And there's a reluctance right now to examine that past with with an attempt to understand how it's affecting current events. And I just think we need to have a clear-eyed um, discussion about the past. And given the content of the text and that this content was, you know, issued by people closely associated with and active at these universities. It, 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 I think it drives that point home. I, I think what we need to understand is that at the time when these yearbooks were certainly first issued, that race was really a predominant part of the culture in terms of ordering race relations. And if you want to understand, for example, why these schools engaged in massive resistance, why, why they resisted integration, for so long, many of these schools were not integrated until the 1960s, and and really there were, weren't many black students on these campuses at all until the 1970s. If you want to understand why that happened, if you look at the early content of these yearbooks, it becomes more clear. Stephen Polson, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Stephen Polson is a professor of sociology at James Madison University. His book is Racism on Campus, a visual history of prominent Virginia colleges and Howard University. Isaac Newton is foundational to the West understanding of space and motion. For centuries, William and Mary has had a copy of Philosophy, Isaac Newton's document on his theories of space and time. But for all that time, no one could figure out who it was who wrote the Latin notes in the margins of that great book, or what exactly they meant. That is, until William and Mary undergraduate student Caitlin Dolt cracked the case. And she did it within a week. 
Caitlin, why were the Latin margin notes such a mystery? Why did it matter? Yeah, so um, this book kind of spurred the rest of of physics as we know it. Um, And so to find a secret code and to find um, scribbles in the margins was um, very interesting, um, but also very odd. What year were you when your professor came to you and said, help me crack this code? I was a sophomore. I was 19. In my modern physics class, my professor was out and we were treated to a guest lecture, a guest lecturer named Josh Ehrlich. And Josh was like, well, I don't know why, but but when we compare two sets of variables, we write CF. Um, and I <laughs> um, spoke out of turn and said, well, um, CF actually stands for conferatur. It's the passive form of the Latin verb to compare. And Josh was like, thank you. Thanks so much. Um, come see me after class. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> no. um, I shouldn't have spoken out of turn. Um, I come and I see him after class um, and I'm expecting to be scolded. Um, and he was like, do you speak Latin? And I was like, a little bit. Um, and he was like, do you want to do research? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so that kind of... Um, out of that that quick little conversation, we kind of find ourselves here now. Um, now I'm writing my senior thesis, um, culminating like three years of work on that project. Before you explain how you solved it, talk a little about Newton's principles of natural philosophy and how this was seen as the most valuable book in William & Mary's rare book collection. Yeah, so um, Isaac Newton wrote his text. Um, it's in Latin. It's called uh, Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, which translates to the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. Natural philosophy is this field of study that kind of transforms into what we now know of um, as, as physics. Um, and in this text, he writes every everything that we now know of, of as Newtonian physics and classical mechanics. So he talks about um, his his three laws, F equals MA. Um, <laughs> we also have like a um, universal law of gravity, um, apple fall from trees and all that jazz. Um, and so in that way, it's incredibly important. What was in the margins? What were you all trying to figure out? And you weren't the first. Your professor and you weren't the first to try to decode it. Others had tried and failed. I think that I was kind of the first one to discover the secret code, but I know that there, um, I had a predecessor who was looking at the margins um, before we saw a whole bunch of Latin. Their motivation was to try and figure out when it was written. The first edition was written in 1687, and we know that um, the text was donated to William and Mary by a guy named Thomas Stoughton Savage in 1869. So that's about a 200-year gap. But I was actually able to find references to um, an edition written after the time of Newton. So um, Newton wrote three editions, and then some French monks um, actually went through and parsed through Newton's proofs with a little bit more detail, and that was in 1742. So Jackson was looking at um, trying to figure out when it was written. I cared less about dating it and more about figuring out what the hell was written, um, (laughs) what was going on there. Um, I was able to translate a bunch of the Latin and found that it was largely um, copied. It was was the changes from the third edition copied back into the first. And so that kind of solved part of that mystery. But then the other thing that I found were these strange symbols. I remember like talking to to Josh, um, my advisor, and being like, do you know what these are? Are these like planetary symbols from like astrophysics? Like, like, is this cosmology symbols? And he was like, I don't know what that is. And I was like, I don't know either. And I figured it out last semester. So what really were the breakthroughs for you? And what were your challenges? For one thing, there was apparently somebody who also wrote in the book, who was less significant, you know, at another time that you've dubbed the doodler. Yeah. So it's so funny, actually, on the first few pages of the text, it's like that the O's and the title are scratched in, cross-hatched in, and someone has um, just random underlines and dots and drawings. Um, so we've kind of called him the doodler because he appears to be that of a bored student. Um, definitely finding that <laughs> made me rethink all the times that I've written in my textbooks. Um, oh no, what if someone discovers that in 300 years? So with regards to figuring out the secret code, um, My process was largely, I I have a a Google Doc on my computer in which I went through and screenshotted almost all of the instances of secret code in one column. And then in the right-hand column, I paired it with the words that it was um, associated with. So I'm able to kind of pair up 
each symbol with what the word is supposed to be. I was looking at two words um, in Latin, sit and sunt, which are two different forms of the verb to be. So it's a really important, important word. And I noticed that sit was composed of, um, it almost looked like a P. It's a circle and then a, a vertical line. And then sunt was a circle, a horizontal line, and then a vertical line. Um, and I kind of had this idea that the secret code might be a shorthand of sorts. Sit, S-T, and sunt, S-N-T. The difference is that existence of the N and the existence of that horizontal line. And so I kind of had, oh my gosh, I was sitting in my kitchen. Um, and I just had this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, um, I just gotten off the phone with my grandparents. Um, what if this horizontal line was, was an N? And I looked through my Google Doc and I found... Um, different different words that contain the letter N. And I found in all of those spots, there was a horizontal line. I was like, well, if, if, if the N is a horizontal line, maybe the S is a circle and the T is the vertical line. And I went through and everything just kind of, it was like um, a pyramid of cards just kind of fell down um, and everything fell into place. I emailed my, my advisor and I was like, Josh, I did it. I figured it out. I, 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 I figured the secret code out. And th- that was the exact words of the email. Like I was like, I figured it out, period. <laughs> I got it, period. <laughs> I, I think I figured it out. Um, and he was like, what? This is so crazy. How did you do this? Come see me tomorrow. Um, and it, it was like <laughs> midnight. Um, and I just, I remember running around. I live with six of my, my closest friends. And I just remember like knocking on all their doors. I was like, guys, guys, I figured it out. I figured it out. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm just like, so, it was so excited. So who was the mystery annotator? So I have a theory right now that the guy that gave the text gave the Principia to swim is our annotator. It's this guy by the name of Thomas Stoughton Savage. He's an Episcopalian reverend. I was able to find some handwriting samples from him, and I was able to compare Thomas Savage. Um, his P's are open. They, they kind of look like H's. Um, and his D's, the, the stem of his D's, curl over towards the front, um, kind of making a hook. And so those were the two features. Um, and I found matches. I, I was able to kind of match up Thomas Stoughton Savage with the annotator. Um, And my theory as to why um, is much more complex. So in this time period, there's there's an organization um, called the Royal College of London. It's a very prestigious um, organization for all of the great thinkers um, of the time. Um, Kind of like Mensa today, um, but like a little bit bigger. Um, And to get into the society, there was an entrance exam, a lot like an SAT or an ACT today. And so my theory is that Thomas Stoughton Savage is studying for this exam, and he's going through a newer copy of the Principia to, to write back into his edition to study for this exam. And that's why he used shorthand, because the the environment, unfortunately, was incredibly competitive and kind of icky um, in the way that you would you would write. It's, it's, it's a common practice to write in, in a secret code um, so that other people couldn't read your work. And so that's why I think he included this form of shorthand that isn't seen anywhere else. That's my, that's my working theory. <laughs> you think somebody's going to snatch you up after graduation and entice you into code breaking for the U.S.? That's so funny. Um, I do have a job offer already um, in tech. So I think that studying Latin and physics together is is a fantastic, fantastic combination. Um, I feel like in every major, professors try to teach hard skills and soft skills. And while the hard skills of physics and, and classics never really overlapped very much, the soft skills really, really did. Uh, physics teaches me how to look at systems and and how to analyze how changing one part affects the whole um, in the the bigger picture. And Latin teaches me that that bigger picture isn't static, um, that that it's evolving. And studying history teaches you that the past and the future are just as important as the present itself. So in that way, like studying both physics and classics are, are completely unrelated, but are so intrinsic to the way that I function and the way that I look at the world. Do I think that I'll be thinking about this project after I graduate? Absolutely. Do I think that I'll be working on it? Yeah. No, I think I do. I think I will. I think I will. But I don't know if I'll be doing that (laughs) full time. But if anyone wants me to and will pay me money, (laughs) reach out, reach out. You know, here's Newton's book, one of the most important in the development of modern science. It lays out his laws of motion and gravity. But you had never been immersed in that particular book before. Did spending so much time parsing it, reading it, 
and looking into this mystery triggers something in your physics mind that was sort of a revelation or, or deepened your understanding of physics as a byproduct of solving the mystery? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this text is written in, in three editions. And so analyzing the changes in those editions and, and seeing how Newton himself created the idea but then developed his ideas was so illuminating. I felt like I got this front row seat to the biggest show in all of science. I really got to see how he changed his idea. Yes. Isn't that often the most important part of the creative process, the missteps along the way and what people learn from them? Absolutely. Absolutely. Most specifically, um, the, can Newton completely changed the way that he derived um, air resistance and fluid dynamics, and that's what I'm studying right now. What's next for you, do you think, with all your research? A bunch of writing. Um, a bunch and bunch of writing. <laughs> Josh is, is kind of pushing me right now to write something that, that could be published, like in the form of a book. That's what I'm shooting for. But we'll, we'll sure see. It's a, it's a whole bunch of writing time now. Caitlin Dolt is an undergraduate physics major and classic studies minor at William & Mary. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. The 2022 Virginia Festival of the Book presents an afternoon with the National Book Awards with authors Robert Jones Jr., Amber McBride, and Jason Mott. This will be on March 19th in Charlottesville plus more than 70 other free in-person and virtual events, visit vabook.org. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Our interns are Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.